0: Good morning to you again. Try it again. Good morning to you again. There you go. See, Jake hit me. That's nice. Let's me know I'm alive. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, where our series in the Gospel of Luke brings us to the Lord's Prayer, verses 1 to 4. As you're turning there, you'll you'll notice in your copy of God's Word that Luke's account of the Lord's Prayer is much shorter than Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer. But the theology between the two prayers is the same. And that's going to be our focus this morning. Next week, we're going to consider more the practice of prayer. But this morning, I want us to focus on the theology, the truth that upholds all believing prayer. That's our focus today. So let's consider God's word together, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together as we consider God's Word. Father, I do ask for Your help today as I've already prayed Many times this morning, we we ask, Lord, and we plead with You that You would bring glory to Christ through the preaching of His Word. That You would cause Your church to grow so that Christ's name would be exalted. That You would cause us to grow in holiness, Father, and in righteousness and in love so that Your name would be made known across all the earth. Father, help us now, we pray. We plead with You, God to give us open hearts and minds, give us ears that are ready to listen, hearts that are ready to believe, lives that are ready to obey and follow Your Word. Lord, please keep me from error. Please give Your people discernment. Please, Father, help us to hold fast to the truth, even as we trust, Father, that You are holding fast to us through that very same truth. And we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. The great Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane once said, Do you wish to humble a man? Then ask him about his prayer life. you wish to humble a man? Ask him about his prayer life. That's true, isn't it? For Christians, it seems that thinking about prayer is just as likely to produce discouragement in our hearts as it is to produce encouragement. Why is that? Well, any honest answer has to begin with the pervasive prayerlessness of the Christian church. By and large, we struggle to pray, both individually and corporately. There are regular seasons in our lives where prayer wanes and other things rise to take priority. And because of this, anytime we think about prayer, we pretty quickly find ourselves discouraged. Who doesn't want to grow in prayer? Which of us is satisfied with the level of zeal or fervency in our prayer lives? And so Mr. McShane's critique of our lives rings true. Ask me about my prayer life and my first instinct, friends, is probably going to be to tell you all of the ways that I need to grow or all of the ways that I'm discouraged. But here's the surprising thing when we think about prayer. While McShane's insight accurately reflects our attitude about our praying, it does not accurately represent Jesus' attitude about our praying. In other words, we quickly feel discouraged when we think about our prayer lives, but that's not how Jesus would have us respond. How do you know that, you ask? Well, because of our passage here in Luke 11. Specifically, because of that very easy to overlook setting in verse 1. Notice it again with me. Jesus is praying, as He usually does in Luke's Gospel. Jesus is praying. That alone should get your attention. Jesus was a man of prayer the second person of the trinity the son of god who is equal to the father in glory and might and power this jesus was a man of prayer you see it all through luke's gospel you see it at jesus' baptism luke chapter 3 you see it you see it after intense seasons of ministry luke chapter 5 you see it before important decisions luke chapter 6 you see it in jesus' greatest hour of need luke 22 through and through jesus was a man of prayer verse 1 jesus was praying But here in this text, Jesus' normal pattern is broken up by something unique. One of the disciples asks Jesus to teach them to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples, teach us, Jesus. And notice Jesus' response, friends. This is where we get our confidence that Jesus would not have us to be discouraged. Notice Jesus' response. He does not begin with a lecture on the dangers of prayerlessness. And He doesn't lay out some complicated, impossible practice that will only further a sense of inadequacy. Instead, Jesus pauses His own work of ministry, and Jesus teaches these men a a simple way to pray. A simple way to pray. It's a remarkable display from the Lord Jesus, who is the Son of God And it should remind us that when it comes to prayer, Jesus' aim is not to discourage us. It's not to shake His finger at us and lecture us on the dangers of being prayerless. Jesus' aim is the opposite of that. He wants us to pray, and so He encourages us with this simple but powerful approach to prayer that honors God and does good to our souls. So I want you to keep this in mind today as we consider this text. You may think that your prayer life is pretty weak, and you may be aware of all of the ways that you need to grow, but friend, don't allow your discouragement to discolor Jesus' response to you. Don't allow your discouragement to discolor Jesus' perspective. At the heart of this passage, what do we find? Not a harsh teacher who wants to lay burdens on you and heap guilt upon you about how weak your spiritual life is. Not that kind of person. We find a Savior who wants to meet you in the time of need and teach you from His own mouth a simple but powerful way to pray. Jesus wants us to pray, brothers and sisters. And He's going to show us here how we can find life in doing so. As you look at the details of the text with me, the first thing we should note is that the title, the Lord's Prayer, is a bit of a misnomer. This is really the disciples' prayer as taught by the Lord. It's a model, in other words. This prayer is a framework that gives shape to our praying. That means we don't have to recite this prayer word for word, though there is value in doing that at times. The idea is to give us a vision that will both inform and shape the way that we pray. It's a model. So since this prayer is a model, what is the theology that upholds this model prayer? What's the truth that undergirds this? If we were to sum up prayer in one sentence according to Jesus, what could we say? If we were to sum up prayer in one sentence, what could we say? Here's my simple answer based on the text. Prayer according to Jesus, is a God-centered act of faith. That's it. Prayer, according to Jesus, is a God-centered act of faith. By contrast, prayer is not a duty-focused act of obligation. Neither is it a me-focused attempt to control God. Rather, prayer is a God-centered act of faith. That's our simple summary for this simple way to pray. Now, simple doesn't mean simplistic. So let's flesh this out a bit more. What characterizes this God-centered act of faith? Well, I'd like us to note four characteristics of this model prayer. Four characteristics that I hope will encourage us to lay aside our discouragement and to embrace the simplicity and the encouragement of Jesus' way To pray. Four characteristics. Number one, according to Jesus, we ought to pray as children secure in God's love. Secure in God's love. You'll notice that Jesus begins with an address to God. Look at verse 2. How should believers address God in prayer? We should address Him as Father. Now, in the Old Testament Scriptures, the idea of God as Father was certainly present in Israel's life. Think of Exodus chapter 4 when God said to Pharaoh that Israel is My firstborn Son. So this notion of God as Father is not entirely new to Jesus' disciples. But at the same time, friends, the way the title is used here is profoundly new. Notice that there is no qualifier in verse 1. The address is, in verse 2, the address is simple Father. That simple form speaks to a familiarity that is unique within the Judaism of Jesus' day. This is how Jesus speaks about God as his Father. And now, here in chapter 11, he's teaching his disciples to do the same. The believer does not come to God as a servant, the believer comes as a child. And God is not addressed as Master, though He is certainly the Lord of all the earth and the Lord of every human being. God is addressed as Father. And and so, brothers and sisters, what we ought to see here is that the bedrock, the bedrock of all believing prayer is this truth that God is our Father. The living God is our Father in Christ Jesus. Think about what this says concerning our relationship with God. When it comes to a father and a child, who takes the initiative? Well, the father takes the initiative, of course. Children do not make themselves. The initiative lies with the father. And so it is with God, friends. As the father, God has acted to make us His own. That's where we start in prayer. The address in verse 2 is not simply a title. The address is a declaration of God's grace. It's a declaration of God's redeeming love. When we say Father in prayer, we are proclaiming that God has acted to come get us. That He has acted to make us His own. We did not come to God by our own wisdom or by our own might. God in His grace came to us. He determined to save sinners for Himself. He sent His Son to be the atonement for their sins. He ordained the preaching of the Gospel in your life so that you would be saved. He worked by the Spirit through that Word so that you would have new life in Christ. He adopted you through the Lord Jesus to be His sons and daughters so that we are heirs of all things in Christ. All of that truth is packed into that little word, Father. When you say, Father, you are coming as a child secure in God's love. We start with our effort. We start with God's love that made us His own. And so I don't want to make a law out of it that you have to pray by starting with the title Father, but why would you not? Why would you not want to pray to the Father, your Father, our Father? And friends, this should change our view of prayer. Maybe somebody needs to hear this. Prayer is not a transaction with God. Prayer is not a negotiation. Prayer is not a sales pitch where you attempt to persuade God to hear you. Those ways of thinking about prayer belittle the love of God. They make God more like us, which is always a bad thing. God does not hear our prayer out of obligation. God listens because He loves. God is attuned to us because He has adopted us in Christ. Do you see the difference that makes? When I begin with God and with His gracious love for me as His child, prayer becomes less of a duty and more of a childlike response to a Father who wants to hear you. Who wants to respond. Listen, friends, I, I just want to be honest with you. You may not have learned this yet. Prayer is hard. Prayer is a struggle at times. There is such a thing as learning to labor in prayer. And by that, I mean simply that you pray when you don't feel like it. But here's the difficult point that we have to come to grips with. Much of the time, our prayerlessness is telling us that our view of God is too low. We think too little of God. Our struggle to pray is pointing out some deficiency that we have in understanding the gospel. You don't have to pray, friends, you get to pray. Who is God for the believer? He is my Father, and therefore I pray. In fact, when I struggle to pray, which is every day, right? When I struggle to pray, which is every day of the week, Sunday through Saturday. When I struggle to pray, this is what I do. I go back to those verses in the Bible that help me see God for who He is. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And then I pray. 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And then I pray. Friends, what am I doing in those those moments? I'm applying Jesus' model. I'm praying according to Jesus. I'm starting not with myself, but with God as my Father. And then, in the security of God's love, I pray. Listen, there's no secret to prayer. There's, There's no secret to prayer. If you ever see a book at Mardell that says, The Secret to Praying Better, don't buy that book because it doesn't exist. There is no secret to prayer. But this is transformative. If you struggle to pray, don't start by trying to get more discipline. Don't start by trying to change your habits. Those are good things, but they're not the right place to start. Start with God. Start with God. Specifically, with who He is as the Father of all who believe in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's the first characteristic of God-centered prayer. We pray as children who are secure in God's love. The second characteristic of God-centered prayer also comes in verse 2. According to Jesus, we ought to pray as children focused on God's glory. Focused on God's glory. Notice again what Jesus says verse 2. Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Now, these words are familiar to most of us, but what exactly do they mean? When we pray that God's name would be hallowed and that His kingdom would come, what are we asking God to do? Well, first of all, hallowed be your name is a call for God's holy character to be revealed in greater measure. Hallowed be your name is a prayer for God's holy character to be revealed in greater measure. Remember, friends, in the Bible, God's name stands for His character, for who He is. When Moses was at the burning bush and he asked to know God better, what did he ask to hear? He asked to hear God's name. Or think about that great psalm of worship, Psalm 29. How does it begin? Ascribe to the Lord the glory of His name. So God's name is the expression of His character. God's name is the revelation of His glory. And central to God's character is His holiness. This is why the angels around the throne of God night and day declare holy, holy, holy. That's not excessive. It's not repetitive. That's the nature and character of God. Who is the living God? Who is He? He is the Holy One. Now, make the connection with what Jesus says in verse 2. When we pray, hallowed be Your name, we are expressing our desire that God would be seen for who He is. We are proclaiming that the one great ambition of our hearts is for all the earth to see and know and acknowledge the glory of the living God. In other words, This declaration, hallowed be Your name, is the believer's way of crying out, make Yourself known, God! Reveal Yourself in the world. Cause people to see that You alone are God. And friends, this should be central to our life of prayer. Our world has been devastated by sin. And one of the effects of sin is that people cannot see what is most fundamentally true. They cannot see the glory and the majesty of God. I mean, think, for example, about the, 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 the unrest that we're witnessing in the streets of our country right now. What's at the heart of that unrest? Ultimately, not politics. Not sociology. Not economics. What's at the heart of that unrest? Ultimately, it's an unwillingness and an inability to see the glory of God revealed in His world. Whether it's the glory of God revealed in every human being as His image bearer, or whether it's the glory of God revealed in the upholding of law and righteousness, what we're witnessing in the streets of our country is a culture completely blind to the reality of God. And that means, friends, that means that our deepest desire in prayer is for God's name to be hallowed. Our deepest desires for God's holy name to be seen for what it is. And look, you can, have, you can have absolutely different political perspectives as believers and both pray that prayer together. And that's the point. We pray for God's name to be lifted up. For His glory to be seen and acknowledged in the world. In fact, this is is how the Bible in both the Old and the New Testaments speaks of our aim as Christians in this world. What are we praying for God to do? We're praying Habakkuk 2.14 for the earth to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What are we praying that God would use us to do? 2 Corinthians 4, 6, we're praying that God would use us to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you hear the emphasis, brothers and sisters? What does this world need to see? The knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we pray, hallowed be Your name. Hallowed be Your name. We're praying for God to manifest His glory. To reveal Himself as who He is, the Holy One. And it's a similar emphasis in the rest of verse 2. That next phrase. Look again at what Jesus says. Father, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Remember what we've learned about the Kingdom of God in Luke's Gospel. God's Kingdom is His redemptive rule and reign over all the earth. That's the Kingdom of God. His redemptive rule and reign over all the earth. It's God's commitment to overthrow wickedness and to bring to pass all of His saving promises. And as we've seen again and again in Luke's Gospel, the Kingdom has come near in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus' miracles are about. His miracles show the presence of the Kingdom. But even then, the realization of God's kingdom is yet to come. The kingdom of God is already here, but it's not yet fully present. It's already here, but not yet fully present. And Jesus' point is that our heartbeat in prayer is for that not yet to come to pass. For the kingdom to be realized in full. For God to draw to Himself all of the Lord Jesus' people. You see friends, at its heart, that request, your kingdom come, is a prayer for the progress of the church's gospel mission. Your kingdom come is a prayer for the progress of the church's gospel mission. So let me just remind you of what we believe about the gospel and the church and how this connects with the kingdom of God. Remember friends, this is essential. The Lord Jesus died for His church. He did not die to make salvation possible. He didn't die to make it possible that sinners could be saved. Jesus died and rose again to accomplish salvation definitively for His church. He didn't shed His blood in vain. He died to save His people. And that means when we pray, Your Kingdom come, we're praying for God the Father to honor the blood of God the Son. He died for His people, Father. Bring them in. That's what we're praying. We're praying that the full number of the redeemed would be brought in through the preaching of the Gospel to trust and treasure in Jesus Christ. That's what it means today when we pray Your Kingdom Come. It's a call to focus our hearts on the progress of the church's Gospel mission. To ask the Father to honor the blood of His Son by bringing in the sinners for whom Christ died. At the same time, as we pray that in the present, we also recognize that that work will only be finished when Jesus returns. So praying Your kingdom come also means praying, come Lord Jesus. This is the key. This is one of my pet peeves. Let's be clear in how we use the language of the kingdom. Our job is not to advance the kingdom of God. That's not our job. Right? The kingdom belongs to Jesus, so He advances it. Right? We, 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 we pray for the kingdom to come, and by doing that, we pray for the King to come. The Lord Jesus Himself. Our work is Gospel mission. Jesus' realm is kingdom advance. This grand work of making all things new through His resurrection. So friends, what I'm trying to do here, just to sum up these two phrases, hallowed be Your name and Your kingdom come, what I'm trying to do Right now, is recenter your life and my life on the glory of God. I want us to recenter our lives and particularly how we pray on the glory of God. Believing prayer, faithful prayer, is focused first and foremost on the glory of God. That's a high calling, isn't it? I don't know about you, but that makes me realize that my goal in prayer is often far too small. This is where I was convicted this week. My goal in prayer is often far too small. And so, I want to pray, and I want you to pray in a way that matches the reality of who God is. To say it another way, a glorious God is honored by massive, global-sized prayers. Is that how you pray, friends? Is that how you pray? With an eye towards God's glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, with an eye towards God's glory being revealed so that blind and lost sinners would be saved. Is that how you pray? A glorious God is most honored by massive, world spanning prayers, not little puny prayers. So let's resolve together to make the glory of God the heartbeat of our prayer. Let's pray that God would make us holy so that He is glorified. Let's pray that God would grow our church so that His name is exalted. Let's pray that God would save the lost all across the globe so that the nations of the world would see that there is a God who saves. That's how you recenter your prayer on the glory of God. That's the application here according to Jesus. This second characteristic. We ought to pray as children with a focus on the all-satisfying, life-defining, world-spanning glory of God. That's number two. As you look at verses 3 and 4, you should pretty quickly see an astonishing transition in Jesus' prayer. From verse 2 to verse 3, it's a pretty astonishing transition. Jesus has just called us to pray with a focus on the glory of God, which is big and transcendent. And then in verse 3, Jesus quickly shifts and tells us to pray for bread. So we go from transcendent, world-spanning glory of God praying down to everyday life praying. It's pretty stunning. It's an astonishing shift. But friends, that's part of the mercy of God in the gift of prayer. (laughs) Think, Think about it. This is how God connects our everyday lives with His grand goal for all of history. We're doing two things simultaneously when we pray. On the one hand, we're engaged with God and His work all across the globe. And at the same time, we can ask this glorious God to give us what we need today. Lord, save the unreached in India and help my job to go well today. Jesus says you can pray both. You can pray both. How kind of the Lord, brothers and sisters, to give us such a gift in prayer. How kind of God that we would be able to transverse the transcendent and the today in one act that Jesus calls praying. So let's note characteristic number three. We ought to pray as children dependent on God's provision. We ought to pray as children dependent on God's provision. In terms of structure, Jesus uses three simple petitions in verses 3 and 4. And each one focuses on a different aspect of God's provision. It's, It's pretty simple. Three petitions, each one focusing on God's provision. First of all, we're to ask for God's help in daily life. Notice the first petition. Give us each day our daily bread. Bread here stands for all of life's needs all of life's needs. And we're instructed to pray for this provision each day. Every day. Just like Israel had to pick up the manna every day in the wilderness, so we pray every day for God to give us what we need. You see, Jesus is telling us something about ourselves and something about God. Every day, we stand in need of God's help. And every day, God stands ready to answer. Both of those realities are here in this one petition. Give us this day our daily bread. And so, note the kindness of God, friends, in giving us this particular request. By teaching us to pray for our daily bread, Jesus is telling us that God cares about the small aspects of life. He cares about the daily stuff of life. He is attentive and attuned to what His people need. This is the nearness of God. The same God whose glory will span all the globe is also the God who cares enough to give you bread for today. He's not distant. He's not far off. He's not distracted. He's not too busy. He's so near that you can ask him for what you need today, and he's willing and able to answer. Give us this day our daily bread. It's the kindness of a God who is near. The second petition instructs us to ask for God's provision in our spiritual lives. Notice verse 4 and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. I want you to note the connection between verse 3 and verse 4. Just as we need bread every day to live, so also we need grace every day to live. And so Jesus instructs us to make the confession of sin a daily feature of the Christian life. Through prayer, we come before God to confess our need for his forgiveness. And in His grace, God provides what He alone can give. He forgives His people. And then we, having received forgiveness from God, extend forgiveness to others. You see that there in verse 4. A forgiven Christian ought to be a forgiving person. So each day, we come to God to receive this spiritual provision of grace. But friends, notice what this entails about the Christian life. According to Jesus, the Christian life cannot be lived in darkness. And it cannot be lived in isolation. You cannot hide and at the same time follow Jesus. The Christian life cannot be lived in the darkness. To receive God's forgiveness, you have to come into the light through confession. The Christian who remains in the darkness endures a double tragedy. He has to carry around the weight of his guilty conscience And he misses the refreshment that comes from God's grace. You you cannot follow Christ and hide from Him at the same time. So so listen to Jesus' teaching, friends. Make the confession of sin a regular daily feature of your Christian life. Confess your sin each day. Don't Don't believe the evil ones lie that real Christians don't struggle with sin. That's a lie. Don't believe the evil one's scheme that you can hide from God and everything will be okay. Every believer you know is battling against the flesh. And every believer who is growing is living in the light. The question is not the presence of sin, but our response to it. Will we confess and embrace the grace of repentance? Repentance, that act of turning from sin and seeking to be holy before God. Friends, repentance is not punishment. It's the path to life. So live in the light, brothers and sisters. Live in the light. Confess your sin to God. Even now, to even right now, if, if there is something that you've been keeping in the dark, if there's been something that you've been keeping hidden from God, bring it into the light today through confession. You don't have to confess it to a priest. You can confess it straight to God through the Lord Jesus. Confess your sin and receive, again, the forgiveness of God through the grace of Christ in the Gospel. And listen, if you're not a Christian this morning, and a Christian is someone who is repenting of his sins and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, if you're not a Christian today, then I pray that you see here that forgiveness is something only God can give you. You cannot earn forgiveness. If you're not a Christian this morning, this is the most important thing for you to hear in this message. You cannot earn forgiveness. Notice that Jesus doesn't teach us to negotiate with God. The Gospel is not that we come to God with our good works, and then He weighs them in His scale and decides whether or not they're enough to earn forgiveness. That's not the Gospel, friends. That's an anti-Gospel that belittles God and makes Him our servant. The Biblical Gospel says this, you contribute nothing to your salvation. And you can do nothing to be saved apart from trust in Christ. So if you're not a Christian today, then I'm pleading with you, turn from your sin and trust that Christ alone can forgive you. Is that you today? Are you trusting in Christ? Right now, will you confess your sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness? Friends, I pray that you will. And I pray that in doing that, you too will experience the provision of grace that God gives to those who trust Him. Look again at verse 4. There's one more aspect to God's provision. We ask for daily needs. We ask for spiritual nourishment. The last thing we ask for is God's protection. Over our lives. Notice the last line. And lead us not into temptation. Now, the point is not that God does lead some people into temptation. God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither does He tempt anyone. Rather, the point is to acknowledge that our lives unfold according to God's providence. God guides and governs every aspect of our lives... And therefore, we seek His protection so that we don't fall into the power of sin. Do you remember that uh, scene in Genesis chapter 4 after Cain has uh, killed Abel and God approaches him? And God is essentially calling Cain to confess his sin. And God says to him, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. Remember when God says that to Cain? Sin is crouching at your door and its desire is to have you. Friends, that's life in the fallen world. That's life in the fallen world. And so every day, we ought to pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Protect me from the power of sin and from the power of the evil one. So if you think about all of these petitions, daily bread, forgiveness, and protection, if you think about all those petitions, there's one word that ties them all together. Humility. Humility. According to Jesus, prayer is rooted in humility. We humble ourselves, and we ask for God's provision of our daily needs. We humble ourselves and ask God to forgive us for our sins. We humble ourselves, and we ask God to keep us from all evil. You see, at every level, friends, we're engaged in this God-honoring act of humility through prayer. In fact, one of the great dangers of prayerlessness is that it allows pride to grow in our hearts. When we fail to pray, we are essentially saying to God, I don't need You. When we fail to pray, we're essentially saying to God, I don't need You. I can handle life on my own. But friends, that mindset minimizes the need for God's grace. Remember, the Bible is very clear. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Who doesn't want more grace? I do. I do. And so therefore, we pray. Not because we're duty-bound to do so, but because we're grace-dependent people who want more grace. And therefore, we seek to walk humbly before God in prayer. That's the third characteristic. Prayer should be offered as those who are dependent on God's provision. As we get ready to close, there's one more characteristic. We only have time to look at it briefly, but there's one more that we ought to note. It's short, and it's the final characteristic for God centered prayer. We ought to pray. We ought to recognize prayer as being expressed among God's people. We ought to recognize that prayer is expressed among God's people. Again, this is a simple point, but notice the pronouns in the petitions of Jesus' prayer. Notice the pronouns. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Lead us not into temptation. Simple question, who's praying? Answer, the people of God together. The church together. It's the community of saints joining their voices in a humble, God-centered act of faith. That's not to say that Christians should only pray together. I hope you pray privately on a regular basis. But it is to say that individual prayer is not the sum total of our praying. We ought to be praying with and for one another. The Christian life is not a solo venture. It's not something we can handle ourselves. It is a community pursuit. Give us our daily bread. Jesus teaches the church to pray. Friends, this is why we incorporate prayer so much in our public worship services. This is is why outside of Sunday morning, the only other gathering of the church that we offer is a prayer meeting on the first Wednesday night of the month. This is why we encourage you to pray through the membership directory. We're trying to follow Jesus' model. Give us our daily bread. Pray together as a church Family. It's not a small thing, in other words, to pray with and for one another. Just this week, I had a meeting with a church member in my office. And at the end of the meeting, I said, let me pray for you. And I prayed for this brother. And then he said, let me pray for you. And he prayed for me. And it was incredibly encouraging to my soul at the end of a really long day. Far more encouraging than what that brother probably realized. So pray for the church, brothers and sisters. Pray for the church. Pray with the church. When we gather together, gather together with us and pray and join us together. Pray as a church. And as you do so, remember that prayer is not a duty-focused act of obligation. It's not a me-centered attempt to control God. Prayer is quite simply A God-centered act of faith. And that's according to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your mercy and Your grace to us. We thank You that You have given us the gift of prayer. We thank You, Father, that You have provided us with the privilege of being able to come into Your presence and pray, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, to pray to You as our Father, to ask You for our daily provisions, to ask You to meet our daily needs. We ask, Lord, that You would help us to grow in prayer as a church family. We pray, Lord, that You would help us to grow in prayer as Christians individually. Father, we pray, oh how we pray, Lord, that You would help us to see our calling to, to join with You in this global work of seeing Your glory spread. And we pray, Lord, at the same time that You would help us to recognize the profound blessing of being able to ask You for what we need today. Help us to pray, God. And help us to pray in a way that tells the truth about You and encourages our souls. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand with me as we close?